0: It is never too late, and it is never enough. Jewish History Soundbites, bringing alive the world of our glorious past. Here is our host, live from Jerusalem, Jewish historian and tour guide, Yehuda Geber. Welcome everyone to Jewish History Soundbites. This is Yehuda Geber with another episode of Jewish History Soundbites, and this episode has been generously sponsored by Teach Coalition with election day here, it's arrived. So remember to go ahead and vote. Put in your vote, irrespective of party or candidate. This is the voice of the community for the for the Jewish community's voice to be heard. And um, Teach Coalition, the community's advocate for fair government funding of non-public schools, is encouraging everyone to go ahead. And it's your civic duty. Do cast that vote and um, enjoy democracy. And that's related to the topic of today's episode. We're going to explore a little bit of American Jewry during the Civil War. It's you know a relevant topic. Everyone is is talking about civil civil things or war things. And uh, you know hopefully all the rhetoric uh, thrown around today is nothing compared to um what actually terrible and tragic civil war was back in the day um so it helps put things in perspective as well um of course not everyone agrees that it's even caused the civil called the civil war the lost cause of the south calls it the war of northern aggression so one of the names that it has bestowed on it in history But um, there's a lot to say about American Jewry in the Civil War at that time. Um, The Jews in the United States had grown by the time the Civil War arrived in 1860, Um, whereas in 1825 there were only about 5,000 Jews in the United States. By the time the Civil War rolled around with the large German-Jewish immigration uh, mid-century, there was about 150,000 Jews and probably even more in the United States, in in North and South, um, uh, by the time the war arrived. In fact, it's interesting in the way a communal uh, leadership and organization is. You're talking about a Jewish community that was quite old. They were around from the early 1600s, and they only substantially grow in the mid-1800s, and that's when rabbis start arriving on the scene, both Orthodox and Reform in the 1840s, you have Rabbi Rice, and then later on, other rabbis. It's a a topic for another time, but it's just interesting to point out that here you had a Jewish community that sustained itself, did not complete, I mean, there were those who assimilated and intermarried, but as a community, they did not completely assimilate, they didn't disappear. They were pretty much traditional and even orthodox, and they did not have a single rabbi for over 200 years. Uh, a fascinating study of Jewish communal life when uh, it's considered, uh, you know, emblematic to a, a Jewish uh, sustainability over a long period of time to have rabbinical leadership. And here you had in the United States uh, colonial times and um and then to, up till the mid 1800s a community that sustained itself didn't exactly flourish or produce anything significant in, uh, in in Jewish history at this time it was very small and insignificant but it existed and survived for over 200 years without having a single rabbi on the scene so that's something in general to point out about the american uh, uh Jewish community but that's not you know it's definitely not uh, our topic today just to give us uh, an idea where American Jewry was holding at that time between 8 and 10,000 Jews uh served American Jews served on both sides of the conflict uh, in the in the confederacy a couple of thousand and the majority served in the union uh, simply more Jews in in the north and several hundred uh, Jews American Jews were killed fighting for either side of the civil war so talking about where there, you know this this is a Jews played a role. They were part of the story um, in the general picture. So what I want to focus on, and I'm not going to go through the whole story of American Jewry in the Civil War. I want to try to touch on three uh, very interesting stories um, and significant um, milestones in American Jewish history that all took place during the Civil War, three separate episodes that uh, tell us a lot about um, you know, the place of Jews in American history. The story number one is that the first time a Jewish recognized by the government chaplain in the United States Armed Forces was took place during the Civil War. Now there's a law on the books passed by Congress that in order for a chaplain to be recognized by the military, it had to be a member of a Christian denomination. Well, this, you know, again The idea of the separation of church and state was already enshrined in the Constitution, but for some reason... Congress had this law that in order for a chaplain to be recognized in the armed forces, it had to be a member of a Christian denomination. So a Jew could not be recognized as a chaplain because they were not ordained um, by any church. So so what happens is, is that there's actually a regiment um, which had a significant amount of Jews. There were Jewish officers in the American army at this point, and in fact there was a colonel. Max Friedman and had in charge of this Pennsylvania uh, regiment where there was a large number of Jews. That, you know, they were from you know, the Philadelphia in that area where there was a large Jewish community. And they had an unofficial uh, chaplain of Sephardic origin, actually. Was, his family was around since the American Revolution. Um, his name was Michael Allen. And Michael Allen was a Hebrew school teacher in the, the famous Reverend Isaac Leeser's Orthodox congregation in in Philadelphia, and and Michael Allen served as the uh, he was an officer uh, in the Union Army and he served as unofficially as the as the chaplain. Now, he was not a rabbi. He was not an ordained rabbi. Um, so he he it was unofficial and and it, so in fact, iron <laughs> another irony of of American Jewish history. Being that he wasn't an official rabbi, so the appointment that he had within the Jewish community, there was one of the one of the um, one of the prominent uh, figures in the in the American Jewish world at the time was Dr. Max Lilienthal. And Lilienthal was later earlier fa- infamous in the Russian Empire of trying to implement uh, the early Haskalah. I discussed it in in the Velazhen Yeshiva Velazhen Yeshiva series, and later on. He was famous as a reform rabbi in the United States, and I discussed that on the Cincinnati episode. And here we have, uh, Lilienthal. He, you know, he was still accepted as an Orthodox rabbi before he became fully reformed. And, uh, Lilienthal gave this Michael Allen a certificate, which meant that, uh, which attested to the fact that Allen was an observant Jew, but that he was not a rabbi. And if he had any halachic questions, he had to ask, a, a, he had to consult with a rabbi uh, first. He couldn't uh, give a halachic ruling himself. And this is Lilian limitation on Alan's uh, credentials. So, again, a, a little bit of a funny twist there. In any event, so he becomes the the uh, the unofficial chaplain, but he's not really allowed to be. So, he um uh, he they, they get it. They get in they get in trouble with the uh, with the with the government when they find out that he's a chaplain, and and uh, Colonel Max Friedman is not happy about that. So he decides I'm going to test the government. I'm going to bring in a real ordained rabbi. In this way, the government has no excuse. It'd have to be open to anti-Semitism if they would not allow him to be the chaplain. Here they could say he's not really an ordained rabbi, and that's why he can't be the chaplain. So he finds another fellow, a fascinating individual named. The Reverend Dr. Arnold Fischel, who was a Dutch Jew who had been living in England and arrived in the United States. He was officiating in some sort of uh, rabbinical capacity in the Sheareth Israel synagogue in New York City. And he brings him in to become the chaplain of the regiment and um, for Jews to service uh, Jewish soldiers in the Union Army. And again, this time he's outright, he doesn't get an official commission from the United States government because he's not. A member of a Christian, he wasn't ordained by a Christian denomination, and therefore it's the cat's out of the bag, and uh, and and the Jew is not allowed to be a chaplain. So now they make it a a whole to do. They make it a whole issue. Um, there is an organization, a fascinating organization, called the Board of Delegates of American Israelites, um, which kind of united most factions of American Jewry at the time. It had been founded earlier because. The only time American Jewry came together in those days was when there was an international Jewish crisis, the 1840 uh, Damascus uh, blood libel, and then the Edgardo Mortara uh, story in, in Italy with the Papal States, and the and, and Jewish child was kidnapped. The whole whole story that we'll get to another time. But uh, whenever there was trouble abroad, so the American Jewish community kind of tried to get together to help out uh, the Jewish people. So they, they found that at one point, the board of delegates of American Israelites, and they back up this Arnold Fischel. First of all, they back him up to be the unofficial chaplain. In other words, they're paying his salary, not the United States government. He doesn't have an official commission, and he helps wounded soldier, Jewish soldiers in the hospitals, and he makes sure they get a Jewish burial if they die. And he visits uh, the, the encampments around Washington, where the where the different uh, army bases are, to try to administer um you know Jewish and religious services to to soldiers and at the same time also they begin a lobbying campaign in Washington to get this law changed that they should a you know, ridiculous law and he, incredibly enough he gets an audience with President Lincoln himself during the busiest time of the civil war he manages to get a private uh, meeting with the, with the president and Lincoln recognizes the injustice of this of this law that it limits uh, you know specifically Limits uh, in chaplaincy to the Christian religion, and he promises to look into it, and that the law should eventually be changed. Um, so, because of all this lobbying efforts, and and uh, and uh, and eventually the law was changed. By that time, official uh, was not not around anymore because the um, this board of American Israelites could no longer afford to pay his salary. He left the United States. He went back to Holland, and he passed away there many years later. But um, but another chaplain was hired a fellow by the name of Jacob Frankel and Frankel becomes the official first Jewish chaplain in American history um when uh, when uh, when president Abraham Lincoln uh, appoints him as the first non-Christian the first Jewish uh chaplain and he during the civil war and he serves there and there's uh, subsequently other other chaplains uh hired as well that's one story there's another story which is again an, another tragic uh, story in, uh, in American hist- American Jewish history, what, probably the only time in American history that there was an outright official institutionalized anti-Semitism from almost the American government. It was an American military uh, government, um, and that is the infamous uh, General Order No. 11 of the General of the Union Army, Ulysses S. Grant, future um, U.S. President, future Republican U.S. President. And, uh, at that time, the general in the Union Army and the, the, um, the strategy of the Union Army was to choke the Confederacy, the Anaconda Plan, and to destroy them, uh, economically by cutting them off. There's a naval blockade. And, and then, uh, and then, uh, uh um, Grant and General Sherman was, were leading a campaign down the Mississippi River Valley and the Vicksburg Campaign, which, initially failed and then only in 1863 was it successful but in any event they try they're trying to cut and uh, cut off the Confederacy uh, and especially from their economic exports and um, especially cotton um, Which the North depended on and England depended on but they were trying to to uh, choke the, uh, the Confederacy to an economic death so what happens is is that to regulate the the cotton trade uh, there, there, It was impossible to cut it off completely for several reasons first of all because it was just impossible and second of all because it was needed a certain amount of cotton was needed for trade up in the north so while the civil war is going on there's actually cotton trade uh, going on in the north but going on with the north but it, it was regulated by the United States military and that's something that fell under Grant's jurisdiction to give out licenses to traders that they're under the auspices of the United States mil- the Union military to trade um, um, with the for cotton and other commerce related activity now of course, when things happen like that, so then there's uh, illicit trade and smugglers and people who are going to take advantage of it and bribe the military officials to get you know uh, fake licenses or not licensed and Crossing over borders, and it's a military situation. It's very fluid. It's very dynamic, and therefore, is almost impossible to implement the, the the this rigid system of license trading. And there's a lot of smuggling and illegal trading going on, and and uh, you know everyone is involved. There's Jews and non-Jews. There's not that many Jews in the United States altogether at the time, but but uh, Grant who had in a, in a certain. Um, anti Semitic streaked him at this time. He would later come to regret it and make a full 360. But he, um, over the course of a couple of months in, at the end of 1862, he mentions in several letters. Again, uh, this is important to recognize that it was a process that took place over several months. And in several separate times, he refers to in, in these letters as As these Israelites and the Jews who are, who are, uh, you know, involved in this illicit trade and, you know, no Jews are to be permitted to travel on the railroad south or from any point and refuse all permits to come south of Jackson's. The Israelites especially should be kept out and all kinds of commands like that. Um, because he would later, when he would apologize for it years later, when he was running for president in 1868, he would say that he signed the expulsion order in haste. And, uh, he didn't mean to do it and it was, it was without thought. But the reality of the situation is, is that for a couple of months leading up to it, he was already writing in that regard that, that as if all the traitors were Jews and it's the Jews who are doing all the illegal smuggling and he singles them out specifically, um, time and time again. Um, and until it comes to a head on December 7th, actually is another, another introduction. This gets personal with him. His father, Jesse Grant, is in business with a couple of Jewish businessmen, uh, the Mack brothers. And they come down with Jesse Grant, Ulysses Grant's father, and they ask for a permit. Here, look, we're in business with your father. And his father says, yeah, 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 give them the permit. And he gets really angry that now his father is in cahoots with these Jews. So he sends his father and the Jewish businessmen back up the railroad um, uh, to the north, and to get out of the military district until he finally issues this this, uh, this expulsion. Now, on December 17th, 1862, I know dates are normally boring, but the dates here are important. So it's December 17th, 1862, he finally makes an incredible order, an expulsion order. Again, in the modern era, Jews are almost never expelled anywhere at any time, especially not in a free country where they're equal citizens. Not only that, he doesn't specifically name Jewish traders, Jewish peddlers, Jewish smugglers, Jewish criminals. He doesn't say that. Jews, men, women, and children. no trial, no suspicion, no 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 anything, that, not, nothing to do with the fact were they traitors or not. The language of the expulsion order is Jews as a class. in other words, any Jew. Um, the actual language I can read to you the entire. Expulsion order, word for word, so we get an idea of it. The Jews as a class, violating every regulation of trade established by the Treasury Department and also Department Orders, are hereby expelled from the Department. Parenthetically, he means the Department of Tennessee, a military jurisdiction area that included Kentucky and parts of Mississippi, where the Union Army was at that time. Going back to the expulsion order, within 24 hours from the receipt of this order by post commanders, they will see that all of this class of people be furnished passes and required to leave, and anyone returning after such notification will be arrested and held in confinement until an opportunity occurs of sending them out as prisoners unless furnished with permit from headquarters. No permits will be given these people to visit headquarters for the purpose of making personal application for trade permit for trade permits. Um, an incredible order. Um, his own um, Grant's lawyer and confidant, John Rawlins, warned him that you better not send that order. And Grant replies, well, they can countermand this from Washington if they like, but we will wish it, we will issue it anyhow, which is exactly what happened. Um, they started expelling them and the Jews actually start getting removed and the whole group of Jews were removed from areas of, of Mississippi and, um, and from parts of Kentucky. Um, and, uh, and the, um, the, um, and, and, and it actually starts to get carried out. Um, so, so this, this caused a whole upheaval, and, uh, you know, they, they, they send a, there's a group of Jewish merchants who were expelled from Paducah, Kentucky, and this fellow who is well placed and, you know, wealthy guy is Caesar Caskill, who was a, a, one of the Jews expelled. He appeals to President Lincoln, and, uh, and then, uh, they you know this is a violation of the Constitution we're good citizens and how could how could this happen and then they have a delegation that goes to washington d c and they arrive in washington d c on january third eighteen sixty three talking about a little bit more than two and a half weeks later december seventeenth eighteen sixty two now it's January third the next day um washington, uh Washington meaning abraham lincoln he he takes away this expulsion order. he he, he uh, you know that's you know illegal and not constitutional and and taking it out and Jews as a class, especially and uh and they rescind the order. so the the expulsion order is out, and grant is uh is not able to carry it out. Um, so January fourth it lasted for two and a half weeks. What's interesting is that three days before that, um, January 1st, 1863, the Emancipation Proclamation is proclaimed. So you're talking about in the middle of this, this incredible, uh, expulsion of Jews, uh, one of the, probably the worst incident of official institutionalized anti-Semitism in American history. Um, at the same time that the, this, this recognition of, uh, you know, wartime recognition and made, in, 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 mainly to keep, uh, uh, England and France from recognizing the Confederate States of America as a political entity. So, you know, it was politically motivated, wasn't morally motivated, the Emancipation Proclamation. But at the end of the day, the idea that the Emancipation Proclamation is issued at that very same time. So there's a lot of nuance here of, you know, things going on and interplay at the same time. Um, and, uh, eventually this would haunt, uh, come to haunt uh, Grant. When he was running for president, he distanced himself from it he publicly. He said he has no prejudice against any sect or race and each individual is to be judged by his own merit. Um, he said that, uh, you know, there was a, it was a mistake. It was, you know, it was anger. It was wartime. It was, you know, it was, you know, it was, uh, it was an issue and, and it's definitely uh, not something I believe in. And he kind of apologized when he was, when he was president, he hired all kinds of Jews. More than any other, he was he was considered the greatest friend, uh, the, the pre, you know best best president ever for the Jews at that time, and uh, he hired all kinds of Jews to federal offices. He even attended the dedication of the. There was a um, a breakaway minion in Washington from the Reform congregation. There was a new Orthodox shul, Adas Israel, a congregation in Washington D.C. in 1876 when they dedicated their building. They had a synagogue service and they invited the president it became the first time in american history that a president of the united states attended a synagogue service he sat there for 3 hours during an entire uh, synagogue service so that was also his part of his reconciliation efforts with the uh, jewish community um talking about even at the time there were people who were shocked by it senators and congressmen and the media there was all kinds of articles in the new york times Another, which was not Jewish-owned at the time, and uh, and all and all kinds of other publications expressing surprise and and shock there, and even generals and everyone across the army that there was you know it didn't have much uh, support. Um, in fact, there was a fellow by the name of John Tucker, who was the assistant secretary of war. He writed he wrote a letter expressing disgust at this order. He wrote there, "I should not have allowed myself to believe that such an order could have been issued, had I not read it." And then he says there was recently a death of a Jewish officer at the Battle of Stone River, Tennessee. I believe that a major or Colonel Rosengarten of your city was just killed in one of the battles of the West was one of this class of people who was to be expelled, so you know he's pointing out that jews are be, are dying on the on the fields the battlefields of the Civil War, and they're making this uh this uh this uh expulsion order um so that's uh that's that's what happened. I want to point out something that I think most historians have overlooked, that in his death, um, Grant became almost completely Jewish, even, um, in three ways, his death and burial. Number one, he had over a million people by his funeral. Usually, these state funerals are private affairs and by invitation only. And here he filled the streets of New York City at his massive funeral. And not only that, but he was buried in New York City. Is nothing more Jewish than being buried in New York City. He's buried in Manhattan, uptown, and uh, he has the largest ayeul on his cover, the largest on his grave site, mausoleum, mazol- mazol- on his in Upper Manhattan, uptown. Um, so someone like that's almost like a rebbe or something. So you know he had that that uh, that that came around on that side as well. The last thing I want to end off. With, uh, just very briefly, is, is the fact that there was a fellow by the name of Judah Benjamin, who was the Secretary of State. He was the Secretary of War and the Attorney General for the Confederate States, for the Confederacy. Um, he's someone who came from a Sephardic family from England. He was born in, in what's today the Virgin Islands. In those days it was the British West Indies. And he, uh, in the Caribbean. But he grew up in, in, uh, Charleston, South Carolina, which was the largest Jewish community in the United States in the early 1800s. And uh, he wasn't particularly, uh, you know, observant Jew. He has no you know, no real connection later in life, excuse me, to the Jewish community um, or attended synagogue. He didn't do any of that stuff. He was married to a non-Jew, which was a rough marriage and a whole story also. But Benjamin was a brilliant lawyer and a slave owner. He had a plantation even for a period of time and supported slavery and uh, states' rights. A real southerner, and he uh and he was a senator from Louisiana, he lived in New Orleans for many years, and um and he supported secession and uh and he becomes one of Jefferson Davis's closest confidants over the period of the uh of the uh of the Confederacy. Um and he he was one of the only ones who escaped actually, when most confederate members of the Confederate government were were arrested at the end of the war, he managed to escape to England and um and he became a lawyer in England. Had a new career for about thirty years or so, twenty years, or whatever it was. Uh, afterwards, um, so that's that's the whole story also, which I mean, perhaps we'll get to another time. But Judah Benjamin goes down as the first openly uh, open Jew, someone who did not renounce. There was an earlier one from Florida, senator from Florida, then before him who had renounced his Jewish uh, identity and converted to Christianity. Um, but uh, Judah Benjamin lived with his Jewish... He actually sustained anti-Semitism uh, a few times over his career, um, and he became the first Jewish cabinet member in North America when he became a member of the Confederate cabinet. So that's a little bit about the Civil War. This is Yehuda Geber with Jewish History Soundbites. Um, don't forget to go and vote, Election Day, and um, be part of American Jewish history. And uh, the you can reach me at Yehuda at Yehudagabra.com for questions, comments, sources, tours, trips, uh, sponsorships, lectures, virtual tours. And you can subscribe to Jewish History Soundbites on Podbean or your favorite podcast platform. Follow us on Twitter at J. Soundbites, and I hope you enjoyed.